The second of James Luther Adams' Five Smooth Stones of Religious Liberalism reads as follows. Quote, all relations between persons ought ideally to rest on mutual free consent and not on coercion. Here's a definition of coercion from the dictionary. Quote, the use of express or implied threats of violence or reprisal or other intimidating behavior that puts a person in immediate fear of the consequences in order to compel that person to act against his or her own will, end quote. So fear is what makes coercion work. It follows then that fear is what Adams rules out as an element of a liberal free faith. Now the British philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote that, quote, religion is based primarily on fear, fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Was he right? I don't think that James Luther Adams would say that he was. I think Adams would disagree because the free church tradition that he articulated took freedom from fear as a cardinal tenet of true Christian and any true religious teaching. The left wing of the Reformation from which we spring rejected the idea that the state or the institutional church through the power that they wielded had the final say in determining what a person believed and how they lived. Adams would have agreed that some religion is based on fear, but not all. And I would venture to guess that a good many of us in this community could tell stories about how we have abandoned the religion in which we were raised, at least partly, because of the pervasive fear that it generated in our lives. In my own life, I have found that our Unitarian Universalist faith is not at all based on fear. Our seven UU principles form a kind of constitutional bulwark against the encroachment of fear into our free faith. I feel they bear repeating here, and if you've never heard them, uh, I invite you to close your eyes and listen well. If you have heard them many times, I invite you to close your eyes and imagine that you're listening to them for the first time, that you're hearing them for the first time. The inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for meaning and truth, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. I see no opening for fear and coercion here. So by my lights, Adams beats Russell in the contest of ideas on this one. 
Not all religion is based on fear. Our Unitarian faith, Unitarian Universalist faith is not, nor is any religion at its best. Frank Herbert wrote in the science fiction classic Dune, fear is the mind killer. I would add to that by saying, fear is also the life thief. A faith that is free from fear allows us to see that when bad things happen in our lives, they are not punishments sent from a supernatural realm. And a faith that is free from fear also allows us to see that when good things happen in our lives, they are not rewards sent from a supernatural realm. It removes those simplistic equations from our lives, freeing us from crippling anxiety and guilt. A faith that is free from fear breaks open small lives into larger vistas. A faith that is free from fear empowers us to accept and lo love those who are different from us. A faith that is free from fear allows us to see in the words of Unitarian Charles Dickens, mankind is our business, the common welfare is our business, charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence are all our business. The fact that ours is not a fear-based faith provides us with a motivation to help others who might be struggling with the results of fear-based religion in their own lives. In the words of the New Testament, we shouldn't hide our light under a bushel. When it's appropriate, we can let them know about our free faith and how it helps enable us, without fear, to live our one wild and precious life more fully. In today's hyper-partisan political climate, the word liberal has come to have heavy connotations. Some embrace the word wholeheartedly, others find it too laden with baggage, and still others avoid the term altogether as dirty. But what we're talking about this month as we explore James Luther Adams' theology and his five smooth stones of religious liberalism is that, religious liberalism, which is the wing of theology that our Unitarian Universalist faith is a part. In fact, little known fact, when the American Unitarian Association joined with the Universalist Church of America in 1961, one of the names that they were considering for their new consolidated faith tradition was the Liberal Church of America. Imagine if our Fox Valley Unitarian Universalist Fellowship was the Fox Valley Liberal Fellowship. I have feelings about that. <laughs> On the one hand, I longingly wish for a shorter and more understandable name. <laughs> And on the other hand, I'm grateful for the avoidance of that political baggage. But liberal we are. We are religiously liberal, a stance toward our own faith and our own theology that insists on criticism or exploration and examination. Religious liberalism is in contrast to orthodoxy or fundamentalism. It says there is no one set truth 
Nothing set in stone forever. Things change. Our beliefs change. Heck, God changes. Religious liberalism encourages both an emphasis on individual freedom and responsibility, as well as an emphasis on community engagement an insistence that human beings must make real their theology through their lives and actions. Belief is not enough for the active religious liberal. Last week, our guest preacher, the wonderful Reverend Sidney Amara Morris, was in our pulpit and she gave you an incredible portrait of who the Reverend James Luther Adams was, the origins of his five smooth stones, and an exploration of the first stone, Revelation is continuous. If you missed that service, I highly encourage you to watch it on our YouTube channel. Reverend Morris shared that when JLA, as Adams was affectionately known, had graduated from seminary and then at Harvard Divinity School, and then he was hired to teach at Meadville Lombard Theological School, my own alma mater, he spent some time in Germany doing cultural and religious exchange and friendship building. Germany was the birthplace of much of liberal religious thought and biblical criticism, which was the idea that people should use reason to examine, understand, and challenge the Bible. So Adams arrived eager to meet with other folks, his brethren in faith, and he was met instead with the rise of the Nazi party. He saw the brown shirts marching in the streets. At one point, he refused to raise the Nazi salute, and he was taken into custody for it and questioned. He saw brown shirts, uh, he saw these brown shirts marching, and he was appalled that his own siblings in the rel liberal religious tradition were not able to impede the rise of Hitler and his political machine. They were powerless. Adams once explained it this way, quote, let me put it autobiographically and say that in Nazi Germany, I soon came to the question, what is it in my preaching and my political action that would stop this? It is a liberal attitude, he says, to say that we keep ourselves informed and we read the best papers on these matters and perhaps we join a voluntary association now and then, but to be involved with other people so that it costs, so that one exposes the evils of society, requires something like a conversion, something more than an attitude. It requires a sense that there's something wrong and I must be different from the way I have been." End quote. And so among his many, many writings, and there were many, many, and they're all very long and very wordy, I tried to find you all some like pithy little quotes today, and they just don't exist. Adams came to articulate in these writings what he called the five smooth stones of religious liberalism. As Reverend Morris mentioned last week, the smooth stones refer to the Hebrew Bible story of David and Goliath. The young small shepherd David was the only one brave enough to fight the giant Philistine warrior Goliath. Now, if Goliath won, his army would take all the Hebrew people captive. So David had a big task ahead of him. He had no armor. He was too small to wear it, and he could not wield a heavy 
shield, and sword. He only had his slingshot, and he picked up five smooth stones. A slingshot and five smooth stones are not much against the heavy metal armor and weapons that Goliath had. But as the story goes, they were enough to defeat the enemy and keep David's people free. And this is what JLA is referring to when he talks about the five smooth stones of religious liberalism. These are the five seemingly simple or obvious tenets of our faith that we can carry in our pocket. And they must be held close because there are forces in the world, big, dangerous, frightening, powerful, violent forces that wish to topple everything that we hold dear. But these faith tenets are, JLA claimed, strong enough to do battle with those forces if wielded properly. So what are the stones? Dr. Morris named them last week, and I will share them again. Don't worry, you'll hear them several times throughout this series. Like our seven principles, they are equally as important and foundational to understanding our faith. So here they are. The first, as was explored last Sunday, is that revelation is continuous. God is still speaking, truth is always being revealed, and it is important that we keep up with that revelation, that change, going with the flow and continuing to adjust all the time. The second is the focus of today's sermon. All relations between people must rest on mutual free consent and not coercion. The third is that we direct our efforts toward the establishment of a just and loving community. Number four, and I love this language, we deny the immaculate conception of virtue and we rely on social incarnations, which means virtue does not just spring forth out of thin air. It must be made real through our human and societal action. And the fifth and final stone, the one that will be covered next week on Easter, is that the resources, both human and divine, that are available for meaningful change justify an attitude of ultimate optimism or hope. So, free consent. That's what we're talking about today. JLA says that all relations between persons, and he's especially referring here to those relations uh, involving our religious affiliations and associations, our churches, societies, fellowships, all relations between persons ought to rest on mutual free consent and not coercion. JLA explained in that reading we heard earlier, the one that was not pithy at all, historically the more profound forms of liberalism began in the modern world as a protest against ecclesiastical pecking orders. Protest against political and economic pecking orders soon followed, and this protest found its sanction in the basic theological assertion that all children are of one God, that all are children of one God, which is meant that all persons by nature potentially share in the deepest meanings of existence. And that theological basis is, the lib is of the liberals' belief that the method of free inquiry is the necessary condition for the preservation of human dignity." End quote. Freedom and consent are necessary requirements for the preservation of human dignity. But freedom is the foundation of many religious approaches, 
Of course, many Christian traditions express the importance of free will that God gave to humans. I recall going, going to Baptist churches with my friends growing up. There was always the importance of free choice in the decision to be saved or baptized. But Adams added the necessary component of consent. True consent, as Mike eloquently said in his reflection, relies on the elimination of fear as a tactic. Now, I've shared this story before, but it's been a while, and it's a good one. It helps explain the nuance of consent. When I was about eight years old, I was invited to go to church with my friend. It was a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in Texas. And while her parents were in big church, we attended Sunday school upstairs. And it was fun. We learned stories. We did crafts. We had treats. But on my second visit, the youth pastor took me aside and asked me if I wanted to be baptized that day. And I remember thinking, and maybe I asked him, isn't, isn't baptism important? Shouldn't my parents be here? And I, I put him off and put him off, and finally he said to me really lovingly, Christina, I'm just worried about you. If you were to get in a car accident and die on the way home from here, you would go to hell. And then he said, the Bible says that the sidewalks of hell are lined with the skulls of unbaptized children. Now, setting aside the grotesque power dynamic of an adult man pressuring a little girl like that, let me be clear that there were not sidewalks during the time that the Bible was written, nor were there architectural plans for the ones in hell. <laughs> he made that up. But at the time, I didn't know that, and I felt scared. As an adult, I have come to believe that that Sunday school pastor believed that he was doing something loving. He was trying to save me from a terrible fate that he actually believed in. But he was employing fear as his primary tactic. And luckily, I didn't succumb to that fear. I think I might have said something like, wow, God sounds like a jerk. <laughs> and I left and called my mom on a payphone to come pick me up. Now, before we hate on the Baptists, please know that later I found a Baptist church that I really loved, and I was voluntarily baptized there with my parents in attendance. But even there, at that church that I grew to love deeply, there was, underneath that promise of salvation and God's love, there was always a, a foundation of fear. Fear of damnation, or even more simply, just fear of being left out of the community's fold. True consent without coercion requires that freedom be without fear. In modern terms, when we often think and talk about consent, we're often talking about intimate or sexual interactions. In our Our Whole Lives or OWL program, it's a comprehensive sexuality education program that we teach to our youth here at this fellowship and in most UU congregations. We spend a great deal of time exploring the nature of consent. When I lived in Maryland, I was asked to teach the OWL program to at-risk 6th and 7th grade girls at an after-school community program. 
I remember teaching them about consent. And one of the most important things that I was trying to reiterate for them was the concept of ongoing consent. That if you say yes to something and then decide you don't like it and you want to stop, you can say no at any time. There's no rule that says once you say yes, you're stuck. The girls struggled with this. Society, especially their own community, had not imparted this lesson to them. And at the end of each session, we did this fun activity. It was called the cinnamon roll hug. Everyone would stand in a line, we'd hold hands. One end of the line would stand really still and hold their spot, that's key, or the cinnamon roll doesn't work. And then the other end of the line would start walking in a circle around and around until they were like a cinnamon roll. And then we would all go squeeze, and then we would fall down and laugh. That was the end of the, the session. The girls would take turns volunteering to be the middle of the cinnamon roll. One day, one girl said she was ready, she wanted to be the middle. But once the girls started circling around and around, she got nervous. Uh, she said. Do you want us to stop? I asked. Uh, yeah. Okay, done, I said, throwing up my hands, interrupting the spiral. A couple girls nagged. Oh, come on, it's not scary, just stand there. Nope, I said, clearly. She doesn't want to do it. Somebody else can be the middle today. So as we were rearranging our line, the girl who had gotten nervous shouted, Oh, that's consent. <laughs> Friends, it was the proudest moment of my career as a religious educator. In our religious tradition, we sometimes use the language of covenant to explore this kind of consent a free mutual agreement to enter into sacred relationship with each other and with that which we hold holy. And the nature of covenant is that like a promise, it will sometimes get broken. We will get frustrated or angry with each other. We will accidentally or on purpose hurt each other. And true covenant is like that consent. We have the choice to come back to the covenant over and over again. We don't have to come back. We can leave the covenantal community and be wished well and blessed on our way. It's always our choice. But the nature of coming back again and again of our own volition without fear and retribution to try in new ways to make the relationship work, that is the key. And in order for the covenant to hold, we all have to work to create those conditions for people to feel safe and to freely enter into the relationship with the community, to eliminate coercion and fear, to be open to returning to the covenant of care and connection over and over again. In that video from the UUA about consent, the Lama Rod Owens says that consent is about, quote, the reduction of harm and violence against ourselves and others. That relationship is about willingly agreeing into some kind of interaction, relationship, or anything, not just with myself, but with other people as well. James Luther Adams witnessed the rise of Nazism in Germany, and he realized the corrupting power of fear and harm that came from coercion. In naming for our religious tradition the necessary foundations to resist such a rise, he named the need for ongoing relationships 
resting on mutual free consent and not coercion. He named for us, if that is missing, something is wrong. The five smooth stones are about what it means to be alive in this world with all the chaos and violence and harm that exists within it. To be able to resist that harm, to actively live in a way that reduces that harm for ourselves and for others. The five smooth stones are a tool. They show us the path toward a lived faith, an active, committed, encouraging faith that brings love and hope to our lives and to the world. May the freedom that we find within our liberal tradition dispel fear from our hearts, and may we work to create a world less guided by fear and more grounded in the power of loving relationship. Amen. May it be so.